The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Nutshell summary of what we mean when we say that David was a man after God's own heart. Not that he lived a morally superior life. Not that somehow he was more blessed than anybody else compared to the rest of us or that he lived this charmed fairy tale existence. Uh, he struggles. He stumbles. He makes some horrible decisions that will have devastating consequences in his life. Right up, as we're going to see, to the end of his life. And yet, through all of that drama, God is shaping this man little by little into a king who would honor him and uh, give him glory in his life. Eugene Peterson, a quote that we had looked at before, uh, summarizes it well when he says, David has little wisdom to pass on to us on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent and an unfaithful husband. From a purely historic point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. But David's importance isn't in his morality or his military prowess, but in his experience of and witness to God. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. As Peterson points out, every experience that David had in his life, he saw as an opportunity to encounter God. And often these encounters would probably be better described actually as confrontations, as Peterson says. And these confrontations we saw were on full display in those wilderness years, those confusing, chaotic years. In those moments we saw the rawness of the poetry that he was writing in his psalms, displaying the full gamut of his negative emotions of anger, of confusion, of pain. And all of that he directed toward God and said, you know, God, what are you doing in my life? What is going on? But I also want to say that all of his encounters with God weren't confrontations. They weren't all of a negative sort. In fact, one of the themes that we're going to see building throughout the life of David is not only his pains and his confusion and all the chaos that ensues in his life, but also this thread of God's unwavering love for David that he grows into deeper and deeper understanding of in his life is that God is for me. God is with me. God loves me. And so we see in his Psalms songs that reflect that growing understanding of God's commitment to him. Psalm 57, verse 3, and then 7 to 10. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. 
Psalm 63, verse 1 to 4, just one more here. It says, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Perhaps the most powerful and dramatic demonstration of God's steadfast love for David came in the passage we looked at in the very last message in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God makes this unbelievable promise to David. In verses 8 to 11 of chapter 7 it says, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make you into a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And then he says to David, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. What amazing promises that God is giving to David. And so this is what happens. Is that as David grows into a fuller and fuller understanding of God's love for him, something very natural occurs in his heart. And he says, to whom can I show this steadfast love? In my life. This love that I have received. Who can I give this love to in my life? And he ends up choosing it in the most dramatic way imaginable. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 9 verses 1 to 4. We pick up the story and this is what happens. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. What's going on is this, is David is remembering the promise that he made to his friend Jonathan years ago, before he went on the run for his life. And so remembering that promise, he asks, is there anyone from the house of Saul, from the house of Jonathan, to whom I can show God's kindness to. And so he finds the servant in the house of Saul who says, as far as I know, there is one single survivor. Pretty much everyone else has been decimated. But he says, there's this one guy. He's a crippled guy. He's, in fact, the son of Jonathan. And so this guy, Mephibosheth, um, he wasn't crippled at birth. He wasn't born that way. He was tragically crippled as a five-year-old. 
and to understand how he became crippled, you have to know something in those days. When a king rose to power, it was almost standard practice to basically eliminate anyone who posed a possible threat to your throne. Anybody who could possibly compete with you because of some royal blood that they may have, you just kill them all. That was just cleaning house that every king did. And you see it quite often in the Bible itself. In fact, even the Israelite kings did this. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 29, it says, As soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it. Speaking of King Basha. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 11, When he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. This was just standard practice in those days. And so news reaches that Saul and Jonathan have died in battle against the Philistines. And the entire royal family of Saul goes in a panic because they know that they're going to be targeted next. If things go as usual, David is going to kill them all to secure his throne and make sure he has no one competing with him for his kingship. And in that fear... This is what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So in her desperate rush, it seems that she dropped this kid, probably even fell on him. And in all likelihood, it broke both his legs at the level of the ankles. And the legs would never heal properly. And so he became lame for the rest of his life. It's interesting, Jonathan's son wasn't born with the name Mephibosheth. In First Chronicles chapter 9, verse 40, it says this, And the son of Jonathan was Meribbaal. And Meribbaal fathered Micah. We know this is the same person because Mephibosheth had a son named Micah. But it was probably after he became crippled that his name was changed to Mephibosheth. We don't know exactly what Mephibosheth means when we look at the Hebrew, but it clearly contains the root word for dishonor or shame. As Mephibosheth gets older, you sort of wonder if anyone ever told him the story of how he became a cripple, why he could never walk. And if anyone ever told him the story, you would have to imagine that David would have been at the center of that story. Yeah, we were pretty sure David was going to hunt you down and kill you. And so to save you, your nurse ran with you. And that's why you're crippled. It's because of David. And so here was a, a young child who was 
once able to run, but now he can no longer walk. He was once the wealthy heir to the throne of Israel, and now he is hiding in obscurity for his life. And David is at the center of all of that. And then one day, the day that Mephibosheth had been dreading his entire life comes. If you look at the timeline, by here, Mephibosheth is probably around 20 to 25 years old. And he gets word that his whereabouts have been discovered. And David the king has asked for his presence in Jerusalem. And so in verse 5 to 13, this is what it says. Then David, King David, sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, and Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. It's hard to imagine that Mephibosheth felt anything other than terror in this moment. All he could be imagining is that he has been brought to the palace to be killed. And so as we continue in verse 7, though, this is what happens. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all his house, and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a son, whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. It's just this amazing story of compassion and love that David shows to this guy. And that it's centered around two promises that he makes. One, he says, all of the lands of your grandfather Saul are now yours. You have suddenly gone from obscurity to being one of the richest people in Israel. And then secondly, every day there will be seat at my royal table for you. You will eat with me as if you were my own son every day. And all of this is because of a promise that he made to Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 14 to 15, Jonathan says to David, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love. There's that word again. The steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David 
from the face of the earth. In other words, Jonathan begs him, don't do like all the other kings do. Please don't wipe out every one of my descendants from the face of the earth to protect your own throne, but spare my children. This is a term that we've been seeing through almost every single passage I've looked at this morning, and it's this word steadfast love. It's a single word in the Hebrew, and we've looked at it already in a previous message in this life of David. In the Hebrew, it's chesed, okay? And this word chesed is so hard to translate. That's why in the English we use two words because there is not one English word that captures the full breadth of the meaning of this word. Because on the one hand, this hesed love, what it's describing is a genuine sense of affection, of love, of passion, of, of commitment towards somebody. But very closely related to that idea of passionate love and kindness for someone is also the idea of dependability or steadfastness, or commitment, or covenant. It's these two ideas that are brought together in a picture that is absolutely otherworldly because the thinking is like this. When I think about my passions, or my genuine sense of warm feelings towards somebody, that is undeniably a powerful emotion that we feel. But we also recognize that because it's emotionally driven, it's also very volatile. Sometimes I am swept up in that feeling towards somebody, but the truth is sometimes that feeling dies. And so what it says is there is this enormous passionate love and kindness directed towards somebody, but it is married with the idea that it is clockwork dependable and consistent and always there. That is the word chesed in the Bible. God is always for me in his passionate love toward me, and it's never ceasing. It is always there. And that is the love that is being used in every one of these passages. David is saying, I have experienced that chesed love from God, that covenant love from God, and so I want to give that covenant love to somebody else. And he says, I have made that covenant with my friend Jonathan, and I will now keep that promise by seeing if there is anyone still alive that I can bless in that way. In a way, this is such a beautiful scene that we can romanticize, but you have to understand how absolutely risky love like this was for David. Really, he should have killed Mephibosheth, cleaned house. But by letting this guy not only live, but empower him by giving him land and giving him legitimacy by saying, I'm going to treat you like one of my own flesh and blood sons, he has, in essence, empowered the very guy who could take over his throne. And when most of us know the story of Mephibosheth, we just stop here at chapter 9. But that's actually not where the story of Mephibosheth ends, actually. Because there is yet another story about Mephibosheth toward the end of David's life. All of this will sort of come back to haunt David in a way. Because what will happen is later in David's rule, his son Absalom will take a shot at his throne and stir up a rebellion against him. And suddenly now, once again, the country is divided in civil war. 
And now everyone must pick their side. Are you for David or are you for Absalom, his son? And Mephibosheth gets swept up in this drama. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, 1 through through 4, this is what it says. When David has passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, remember him, the servant? Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? He's talking about Mephibosheth. Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. So according to Ziba, he says, The reason why Mephibosheth didn't flee Jerusalem with you into the wilderness is because he's turned on you. He saw this as his opportunity to reclaim the throne that rightly belongs to him. And you let him live, and now you're going to live to regret it. But it's interesting. Once David puts down his son's rebellion, he will meet up with Mephibosheth face to face. And we hear Mephibosheth's side of the story. In 2 Samuel 19, verse 24 to 28, this is what takes place. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. From the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He had slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? So Mephibosheth says, I never betrayed you. I wanted to go, but Ziba betrayed me. And he left me behind in Jerusalem. What you have to understand is this. There is ambiguity in the text here. We're not sure there's one of these two guys is lying, right? One of them is telling a lie. The problem is we're not told which one is lying. The text seems to suggest that it's Mephibosheth who's telling the truth because he is in the posture of mourning. He's unkempt with his beard long but it actually doesn't definitively answer it. And based on what actually David will say, you realize David is not sure. He doesn't know. He, 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 either he's got an opportunistic liar in Ziba who's trying to engineer his own way to get Mephibosheth's estate, or he's got 
an ungrateful competitor to his throne in Mephibosheth, who's trying to sneak his way in, in a moment of David's weakness. And he doesn't know what's going on here. He doesn't know what to do. And so this is what happens. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 29 to 30. And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. I think this. I think the easiest thing for David to have done in that moment was to kill both of them, in all honesty, right? That's the cleanest way to solve this because his very own flesh and blood just tried to usurp his throne. David is incredibly paranoid right now. And in that paranoia, the human instinct was, I don't know what's going on in my kingdom anymore. I'm going to kill you all and get rid of you all. You know, a pox on both your houses. But David does the exact opposite. And he says, I don't know which one of you is lying to me. But he says, but there's a place for both of you in my kingdom. And he welcomes them back. What I find in David's action there is love is love. Listen, maybe there is a point where he has to try to get to the bottom of all this. Maybe he's got to do some detective work. But what I find interesting in this growth trajectory of David as a king and as a man is he is growing in his compassion and his love even to his enemies, the very ones that are trying to hurt him and take him down. I think that is ultimately what I see here in the heart of David in a situation like this. And that is one of the points, that's really the point that I'm trying to make this morning is simply this. If we're going to learn a lesson from what takes place here, it is this. It is that we are all going to face a lot of broken situations in our life where we're staring at something and going, I don't know what the truth is in this. I don't know if this guy's lying to me. I don't know what is happening here. But if there is one constant that I think God is pulling us to, it is this. In whatever you do, always act in love. In love. I think that is something that David is learning. The same love and compassion and mercy and slowness to judgment that God has shown toward me, I must learn to show to others. I don't know. One of these guys is a scoundrel. (laughs) But I can't figure it out right now. And I'm just going to show compassion and mercy to both of these guys until I can sort this out. Or maybe God sorts it out in his own way. I'm going to challenge all of us that this is not a natural instinct for any of us as Christians. I want to challenge us that we're all facing difficult situations in our life. And we're all trying to problem solve. We're all trying to analyze. We're all trying to figure out, what do I do to get out from under this situation? And I'm going to offer you that maybe what God is saying is what is needed more than anything is love. Is my steadfast love in that situation.
that maybe the place that you are called to in that situation is not to be the detective or the problem solver because always our natural reaction in these situations is either to fight or to flight, right? To run away. But what God seems to be saying to us is, no, the natural reaction of anyone who knows me ought to be to love, to bring love to that situation and keep bringing that love faithfully, even in the face of garbage like this, where you're looking and saying, someone is doing something goofy here, and I can't get to the bottom of this. And I don't know if this guy is being sincere with me. I feel like this guy is maybe cheating me, but somewhere in there, the one constant that builds the kingdom of God through us is the love that we demonstrate to other people. I'm realizing my time is up. (laughs) I want 45 minutes, but we have 30 minutes because we have the uh, congregational meeting. Let me read a Bible verse. I'm going to show a quick video clip and we'll wrap up here. 1 Corinthians verse 13, 1 through 2 says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. I don't know if any of you saw this documentary that came out last year called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Did anyone see it? Yeah, Um, not many of you. (laughs) I think it's worth watching. Um, I don't know, how many of you grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? (laughs) Wow, actually, I thought more than I thought. Okay, I grew up watching it. Um, I didn't know this, but Fred Rogers, who's Mr. Rogers on the show, is an ordained Presbyterian minister, you know? And it never comes across in the show, but it was really out of his faith in Christ that flowed all the values that he tried to instill in this show. What was interesting is that during one season of his show, this backlash sort of came out against Mr. Rogers. And they basically accused them of this. The ethic of Mr. Rogers is that everyone deserves love regardless of what you are. And what the critics of Mr. Rogers said is this. He has created a mamby-pamby, wussy generation of people that think that they're so entitled. (laughs) That's what they accused Mr. Rogers of. Oh, everyone is special. (laughs) And that's the problem with America today is everyone thinks they're special. And I think in that critique, they have totally misunderstood Mr. Rogers' message because I think the message he was bringing is simply the gospel message that all of us are loved by God, not based on our performance or our achievements. I just want us to watch this brief clip from the very end of that documentary, and then I'll just wrap up here and we'll be done. Well, I suppose it's an invitation. Won't you be my neighbor? Uh, It's an invitation for uh, somebody to be close to you. You know, I think everybody longs to be loved and longs to know that he or she is lovable. 
and consequently the greatest thing that we can do is to help somebody know that they're loved and capable of loving. I can't think how he would feel about the things that have come out that seem to set us back so far. And I wonder if he wouldn't simply put down his tiger and just stay home, forget about even trying. He's not a person who would have given up, but this is daunting. I, I think he would be trying to bend mend the the split you would be trying to find some way to find something positive when i was a boy and i would hear about something scary my mother would tell us always look for the people who are helping you'll always find somebody who's trying to help I think there are a lot of people out there like Fred Rogers. A lot more than we really want to believe. In response to the question, what would Fred Rogers do? It's not a question that you can't answer. The most important question is, what are you going to do? From the time you were very little, You've had people who have smiled you into smiling, people who have talked you into talking, sung you into singing, loved you into loving. When he was giving speeches, he would say, now, think about somebody who's helped you along the way. For one minute, I'm gonna time you Let's just take some time to think of those extra special people. Mm. Some of them may be right here. Some may be far away. Some may even be in heaven. No matter where they are, deep down you know they've always wanted what was best for you. They've always cared about you beyond measure and have encouraged you to be true to the best within you. <laughs> Thank you. Ask you who you're thinking of? My mother. How I got to this point because it was my grandfather's doing. There was this woman named Viva who used to take care of me when I was little. She was our babysitter. I thought about Fred. How about you? My mother.
Thank you. I wonder if you were to do that exercise, just take a minute to think about in the midst of your entire life, who actually broke through and showed you love, you know? Because the truth is, I bet you there are even people in this room, if you were to do that for a minute or five minutes or 10 minutes, you would struggle to come up with a face, with a name, because that's the brokenness of the world that we live in. And I want to challenge all of us that if God has an agenda for us as his people, it's not the sharpness of your mind or your problem-solving skills or your debating ability or any of that. Your presence in every situation in your life, what God wants to do through you is to show his love to the people in your life. That's our calling as the people of God. Let's pray. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of closing, and as they do, can I just invite you to pray before God and think about um, maybe some broken situations in your life. And it's really gotten you upset and you're really in problem solver mode, trying to figure out what is it I got to do. And maybe there are some very concrete things you need to do. Maybe there's some mediation. Maybe there is some changes that have to be made. But what I would argue is that underneath all of that, the foundation of everything ought to be love. Love. Every decision, every choice, every word spoken to people. It ought to flow from a place of love because God is love. And I think sometimes we underestimate the power of love to heal so many broken situations. That's not going to take a sharp wit or changes in circumstances. What it's going to take is somebody who knows Jesus Christ coming into that situation and demonstrating God's covenant love to the people in that situation. And through that love, he is changing our world. We just pray for just a little bit as our worship team comes to lead us.